Welcome in to episode 29 of The Bluest Tape. I'm Harvey Couch alongside Jeff Kolath. And thanks for joining us as we take our weekly trip through the live catalog of Widespread Panic. And this week, we are joined by, by a very special guest, Mr. Ted Rockwell. Hello there, everybody. Uh, Ted, appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. And um, we've got some music planned for uh, this week, at, curated by Ted. And um, But before we get into that, uh, let's, you know, just talk a little bit background. So what we like to do with our guests, get, you know, sort of uh, your first memories and, and favorite memories and, and things like that. So uh, let's, let's talk about your experience with Panic, like when you were, you know, first in you know, your first exposure, like when was, when did it click, you know, things like that. Sure. Um, well, um, I, I, uh, went to college in Chicago and, um, there was a friend of mine from, from college, um, uh, who was from Telluride and he came home in, I think it was, it was from a, a break in maybe 91, uh, talking about a band that he he'd seen once already, but that they'd come through Telluride and we just absolutely had to check out if they came through town named widespread panic. He'd seen them at the fly to me, the moon saloon. And <clears throat> I worked downtown Chicago, uh, across the street from Rose records, one of the greatest record stores ever to have exi- existed. And I went in there one day and there was the landslide version of space wrangler on cutout, uh, CD, uh, for probably, I mean, I was a really poor student at the time. It was probably a buck or something. So I got it and, you know, started falling in love with that music. But it didn't necessarily, like, you know, turn me into a Uber fan who starts publishing books or anything. Um, they happened to come through that next summer on my birthday, 1992, and at the, at the Park West play lot. And so me and a whole group of our friends all went for my birthday and... Um, it immediately just absolutely, we, we knew we had found a band that we could go see multiple times and we'd really enjoy seeing. Um, and so that was my first experience was seeing them on my birthday with, with a bunch of my friends. And in fact, later on, I I think it's in this podcast, we'll, we'll end up listening to a track from, from that first show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's uh, I think we're saving that for next week, maybe. But um, oh well, shit. Oh, sorry, man. Oh, can I swear on this podcast? That's all right. We'll beep it. It's cool. We want to keep it safe for the kids, you know. For the kids. Not all of us have have children in college yet. We still have toddlers on the side. I'd like to meet these nerdy kids that are listening to this podcast. Um. So so ninety two. So summer ninety two is your first show, and yes, sir. Is that? I mean, does it just ramp up from there or does, you know, does it take a year or two and then you, you find your stride on like your, your prime sort of touring times? Yeah. So they, we were really fortunate at that time. They, they came through Chicago, um, a couple of, like they were there in, uh, let's see, July of 92. And then again in February of 93, like just a bunch of times in a row. And so we really got some good exposure to them. And, um, we, we also ended up with some great little Midwestern tours that happened. And so we, we traveled to the middle of nowhere in Ames in 94 to see them at people, people's bar and grill. Oh, and I wow. say we, yeah. my wife was a big 
part of this. Um, she, she and I saw the first show together and, and she's, she's pretty much been with me on this since the very beginning. And that's helped a lot with, you know, the, the amount of legwork and heavy lifting that might be necessary with the project like we've been up to, um, or especially back in, in the day. But yeah, in, in like 95, um, I completed my master's degree in English Lit from DePaul University. And I had been in email contact with Dave back in, you know, 93, 94. Having an email address was kind of a, a big deal. And um, so we exchanged email addresses. And it was a lot like having a pen pal or something, you know. And so we would have these long little typed out conversations. And in 95, I completed my master's degree. And I wrote him. I said, hey, you know, I, I'm thinking about starting this project. I mean, you guys don't have, you play like a different show every night. But no one's really keeping that much track of it. Maybe, you know, it'd be a thing. And he encouraged me and put me in touch with a few people, including um, Horace Moore. Um, ben Tannen was a, a pretty big, the, the um, administrator of SpreadNet was a big influence at this time as well. He was running SpreadNet and he helped me con connect me with a few other people, including Will Duckworth, who is, um, at the time, was like a database administrator. And so... Um, we kind of turned a corner on creating a database in 1995 and um, published a website in 1995, which, I mean, it, now it feels like, yeah, of course you did, but... You're on the worldwide web at that time, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the address was WTTP colon <laughs> slash slash www.panicweb.com, believe it or not. Actually, no, panicweb.org. Um, and the interface was a bunch of icons like JB's face, I think was, uh, lyrics and there was a skull for canceled shows. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was, it was pretty rudimentary. Um, but it kind of took off from there. There was a lot of people who were really excited about it. Uh, fans were just sending us tons of information uh, for a while, I kept really, really close track of that by hand. Now, in the database itself, we actually keep track of who's providing edits and when. Um, and that really propelled the project. Without without people giving a crap. That, is that a swear word in this podcast? I think you're crap? okay on that one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, that we, you know, continued doing what we were doing. And that led to us thinking, you know, maybe we should publish a book. At the time, I was working in a print shop at DePaul University. So I had access to, print, uh, like, full-on printing presses. And um, the, one of the very first binding-capable Xerox machines. And I literally printed um, every single cover of the first edition um, and the second edition. And all the guts for the first and second edition on on this Xerox machine, we ended up having to bind it externally. So it was the only thing of the first two editions that we didn't do ourselves. Um, Lisa did all of the design, um, all of the artwork, um, and Will was you know it was really essential to have someone keeping track of the data. And at the same time, I was spending hours upon hours pouring over people's notes and tapes and making tons of edits. And I have a lot of them still. I would print everything out and just like go show by show. And it, I mean, the, the amount of time I was spending, it was definitely OCD central. It was crazy for sure. But I just come out of a master's degree in English literature. So that's kind of what I was used to doing anyway. 
Um, so that's the first two or three years, 95, 96, 97 were heavy lifts like that. We were, we were just, I was working, you know, at least 50 to 60 hours on this project every single week without fail and working for 40 hours a week, um, you know, full time. So, and then in 97, you know, we ended up seeing like, um, I think I saw almost half of the shows in 97. Lisa saw probably a little over a third. Um, so that was, that was our peak time right then. That's a good year to be peak time. Yeah. We got really lucky, you know, um, Jeff, I know you're from Madison and so there's a little tidbit about Madison. I've, I've repeated it a few times, so this isn't any like, you know, scoop or anything like that. But the very first time we had a, a book to actually present, um, to the band or to management was in Madison, um, at the Barrymore shows in October of 1996. And, Uh it remains one of my absolute most cherished memories because it was so, first of all, it would, you know, it was like this project we'd been working on so hard, but then to see the members of the band get so much out of it and be so thankful. And so, I don't know, enthused, um, you saw a spark of why we, we intended to do it in the first place. And, and then it really helped kind of propel us forward because it was obvious that they, they understood how much time and effort went into it and really appreciated it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, the, this has been between the companion and the uh, dog-eared copy of Dead Base Junior that I, I have on my shelf at work. Um, like, it's just, it can, it's hard to imagine how much time I've actually spent looking at your site over, over the years. Um, just as a time, not, not even a time killer, just sort of like going into a random year and picking out a run of shows and just seeing what, what goes where it's like, huh, that's interesting. I've never listened to that before. So it's an incredible resource in that way, just to find new things to listen to. But you kind of touched on a little bit. One of the things I'm really interested in is, is sort of like the fact checking of, of the set lists and the notes that you have, either you got from the band or you got from other people you say you sat down and you listened to them. So, I mean, so I guess talk about your fact checking process and who is, are, are you the ultimate decider no. on things, but then also, so that's a, that's a two part question that, and then one of my big questions always has been the intos and the out ofs. And, you know, sometimes you look at a set list and it's a whole set will run together and then you listen to it. Like it didn't, that, 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 it's not so and other times it'll be a hard stop and it will be in there will be a clear transition so is talk about one fact checking and two like the decision making that either you or others have done in terms of set list flow and that kind of thing sure yeah i mean this was this was actually a very big point of debate um early on in the project and there were a lot of people who had very definitive opinions about what was going on um including people like daniel gold and uh, brian irby Scott Holcomb factors pretty importantly in this whole conversation. Um, and then other peripheral individuals as well who, you know, people like you who would be like, oh, this isn't a transition, this is. Um, you know, we debated for a long time how a transition may end up being something. And really what it comes down to is um, if, if, you know, if there is, you know, something in, in the database that isn't, doesn't seem correct, it's probably not. Um, you know, a lot of this information comes from people's memories, notes, 
Um, sometimes they just kind of write it down or it comes directly from listening to it. I didn't mean to imply earlier that somehow I've listened to all of this. I haven't necessarily <laughs> um, listened to any of it really uh, in, in comparison to some people. Um, I, I think one of the, one of the things that's, that's interesting is the way in which people interpret um, the rules of um, the, the record of, of the record keeping, right? Uh, what constitutes a, a SIG is, is something that can be up for debate. Um, is it that fast stop start that maybe the band would do between Henry Parsons and I don't know, pigeons or something like that? Um, or is it something a little more literal like chili Jack chili, right? Um, at the end of the day, um, I try not to get too technical about it. I try to just let my heart tell me what I'm hearing. Right. Um, it's more, it's more art. It's more art than science. I think. Yeah. I mean, well, and you asked if I'm the ultimate decider, I guess, but I'm not really, I mean, when it comes down to it, Scott Holcomb is the decider (laughs) because he's the guy that maintains the database currently. And he's been the one that has been doing the bulk of the edits for, Godly, how long? 17 years now? A long time. Um, he's also the guy that decides teases, uh, jams, um, and then full-on like you know, instrumental versions of that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I try not to get too caught up in like the that part of it because it really it's about kind of a larger community thing that's going on here. Uh, you know, there's... Without the fans, we wouldn't have this, you know, without the music, we wouldn't have this. And so, you know, we're, the way I look at it is I'm just kind of a instrument to that. I'm just here to make sure that people are getting, getting that enjoyment out of it. It it has been a, a invaluable resource for us as we've sort of stumbled through this experiment of, you know, uh, listening to all these shows that maybe we haven't listened to and that finding these themes and things like that. And obviously we'd never would have been able to do that without the resource, but that it also kind of brings to light maybe stuff that people haven't heard before. And it's like, well, you know, is this really that jam or that tease or is that a segue or whatever? But um, that's for me has been a cool experience just sort of dropping down the rabbit hole with some of these shows that I wouldn't necessarily like look, you know, well back in the day it would be like, look on the shelf to pick out the tape or today it's like, you know, scroll through the folder. But, um, but this sort of forces us into, you know, to, to ex- experimenting new, you know, finding new places to go. Yeah. I mean, th- this band has had a very long career. And so um, it, it's on the one hand, you know, you can, you can talk about how obsessive we may be as fans on the other hand, there is a body of work here that um, it is. It goes from you know a bar band trying to figure out who they are, covering a variety of different artists, to a band that really starts starts shifting into high gear and is playing a, a series of genres. Um, it's easy to look back now and say, "Oh, they're playing southern rock or they're playing jam rock," but they're not. I mean, they're they're playing a lot of different things in the same show. And then they shift and they become part of this crazy post Grateful Dead um, improvisational rock scene and then somehow graduate into this like granddaddy status of, um, you know, touring rock bands. They've really come a long way and, and things have changed and they're not the same band 
that they were five years ago or they were 15 years ago. Certainly not the same band that they were 25 years ago. I just want to touch on something you mentioned earlier about the the Barrymore show, the first time that those guys had sort of seen all that stuff collected. Do you think, I mean, not, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but do you think that that had an impact on them, like moving forward, sort of looking at the big picture and how they might uh, map out tours with how they, you know, bring songs out at certain points? Or do you think they just always were kind of kept their head down and they were just in their, you know, going down their road with their, with their thing. Oh, I, I think there's, I think it definitely had a little bit of an, yeah. a little bit of an impact. Yeah. It, there's, there's a few things. So with the band, I think that they, um, they were definitely using it as a resource right from the start. Um, we, we, we knew that they were paying attention to what kinds of songs were being played in what, what cities, um, you know, there were theme set lists that were coming up and I have no doubt that our, our project helped with that. Um, over time we became also a go-to resource for the crew. Um, for instance, when Candace Brightman, uh, joined the crew as the lighting director, um, we composed a lyrics book for her, um, so she could know what the lyrics were to help hmm. do the lights. Well, that lyrics book now has been copied a bunch of times we've added pages to it. They've added pages to it. And it's a part of what the crew gets, uh, as a part of, you know, trying to figure out what's, what's going on with the band. So, um, yeah, there's no doubt that it, it, you know, the band was using it. The crew's been using it. Um, you know, Horace relies on it. Um, you know, it's a thing. Plus, you know, the other thing to consider here is one, one of the things that we were trying to do early on is, is help the fans educate themselves on everyday companion or on, on widespread panic. Um, and that's one of the reasons we chose the name everyday companion is that it's, it's one of these things that you, you can really get into and just find your own path through. Some people enjoy, you know, the guitar tabs and their entire bands who've come to me before and said, you know, I, I learned how to play guitar by following the tabs on everyday companion and other people who, you know, come to me and say, I, you know, I, I really appreciate having the lyrics. I never understood what JB was saying before. Um, none of that stuff existed. A lot of people didn't really understand what the names of the songs were, including, you know, the band in, in some places. Um, they, they, they would have a, ver a word for the, or a name of the song and the song would change and the name of the song would, would be different. And, um, you know, how, did, how did that, I mean, I, I can remember some of those, you know, how did, how did that stuff get like communicated to you guys? Or like, yeah. I remember like, uh, entering a black hole was like, was that like a, do they like ask for people's suggestions on yes. that? I mean, I like yeah, that one yeah. being kind of random, but then like other songs, you know, that maybe start off with one title and then all of a sudden it's something else. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of different sources. One is just people writing things down on tapes. Um, that could be a little different from one place to another. But the primary one um, is is Larry Aquaviva. He was one of the original roadies. He was, I think, their original road roadie. Um, and he kept meticulous notes. But he wouldn't use... His notes looked, especially the set lists, looked a lot like poetry. It didn't necessarily go from one song into another. He would sometimes write something between the songs. And he was definitely calling the songs different things than what the band ended up calling them. So later on here in our... Um, our podcast this this week there's going to be a song that comes up that's the last remnant of larry code within the um 
within the database. And when I say Larry code, I mean that very literally. Um, back in 1997, I think it was, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dave Burdell, who I met through SpreadNet, I'd never met him physically, just via email, um, volunteered to reach out to his friend, Larry Aquaviva. And he flew down to Texas and Larry and he drove around Austin for like, I don't know, about a week or so talking into a voice recorder, all of Larry's notes. And then we took those and compared them to set lists that we knew existed to create like a cheat sheet on Larry's code and then went back and interpreted all of his notes um, so I've got like three 90 minute tapes full of these guys talking in a car, <laughs> this Larry code stuff. And that's how we have set lists for like 19, like part of 1989, all, almost all of 1990, 91 and a part of 1992. Um, you mentioned uh, something else there, the entering a black hole backwards. There's a couple of songs that are actually named by fans. One of them is um, uh, breathe and slow, which is the, um, instrumental uh, coda to driving song. Um, I, that's just something I made up and put into the set lists um, to mark that bit of music because I felt like it would be something and they don't play it all the time. Um, the other one is the one that you mentioned entering a black hole backwards. That was actually a contest held on SpreadNet. Yeah, that's um, what that I, Dave, I, well, I'm not crazy that I did actually remember that. Yeah, totally. Leon Leathers is uh, the guy who actually came up with that name. Um, he now runs, um, a, uh, silkscreen, uh, company out of, out of Athens. Um, he's a real fixture on the scene. Huh. All right. Well, um, let's, <laughs> let's get to, let's get, uh, let's get to some music unless there's something, uh, is there anything else that we need to, we need to touch on before? I love talking to you guys. Yeah. Let's, no, uh, let's I mean, do this more often. For sure. All right. Well, All um, right. so we're going to go, you picked out a handful of things. We're going to kind of just go chronological, which is cool, especially since you touched on um, the different sort of styles and genres and things that they morphed into over the years. Um, so we're going to kind of follow that along as, as we play these next two weeks. So um, we're going to start things off in uh well, Ted, why don't you 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 could do the intro. This is a uh, this is the the ADH show. All right. So yeah, this is uh, November nineteenth, nineteen eighty eight. We're at the Little Five Points Club in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, this is uh, a, a show that um, is uh, what I, I call the emerging beast or something like that. It, it's one of these shows where you can really feel like um, the band is burgeoning and and getting ready to to do something big and special. Um, listen uh, about three minutes in, two forty-five in, for um, Dave teasing Frere Jaca as he is trying to match Hauser's hints of C Brown, um, and that seeks very well into one of um, Hauser's instrumentals, Claiborne Terrace, um, which is named after an actual place outside of Fort Worth, Texas.
is not the solution. Sitting in for Sonny tonight. <laughs> All these guys. All right. Widespread panic at the Little Five Points Pub in Atlanta, Georgia, November 19th, 1988. Uh, right at the start of the second set, a jam into Cleburne Terrace, and then Ophelia, and then Seabrown. Ted, you got any you got any more to say about, the, as you called it, the emer- this emerging beast show? Oh, my God. I mean, seriously, that did we just all listen to that together? Because, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that is crazy. Think about, this is 1988. This band has basically been together for just over two years, and they're performing at this kind of level. It's kind of crazy. Um, I love that C. Brown intro that Hauser has in there. This is an earlier version of C. Brown. And I really like how he does that intro. It's a very mellow and, and interesting way of entering the song. And you can, you can feel how he was sort of practicing that during that jam uh, at the very beginning. He was trying to figure out like maybe something going on there. Um, and, and I see a, a definite relationship between Claiborne Terrace and C. Brown as a result of that, right? And you could hear those songs kind of mirroring one another a little bit. I also love JB's vocal com- uh, performance on C. Brown. It almost feels a little bit like a spoken word poetry, the way he's going about it. He's not, he's singing in a few spots, but not as much as he does today. Um, he's sort of saying this stuff as if it's uh, like off the top of his head or he's witnessing it or something like that. But damn, can you feel that beast emerging during the bridge? Hauser and Dave, like, God, getting together and just, it's a monster for sure. So this is absolutely one of my favorites. Um, someone's got to have a digital version of this. Um, my notes on this are that um, there's another version out there that was digital, but it, it sounds like crap in comparison to this. This came from one of my tapes um, that I know someone's got to have a digital version of. Um, in any case, I also love the fact that you can hear the crowd um, through part of this. It's a very jovial crowd. After they finish C. Brown, you can hear Dave kind of you know reach out sarcastically to the crowd that violence is not the solution. Right? <laughs> and C. Brown is about you know uh, putting someone in dust. Um, and then JB makes a joke and basically points out that Sonny is not there for this show. Sitting in for Sonny tonight, all of these guys. Um, so, in any case, one of my favorites. If someone has a digital version of this, let's get it out there already. All right. I love the uh, the JBism at the in the encore before uh, "Let It Rock," um, where he says, uh, "If we could get some beers up here, we'd drink them." <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what what about? Cleburne Terrace. I mean, so this is, you know, according to the Everyday Companion, six times played over a six-year period, and and then it, then it obviously it it uh, it appears in Door Harp. Um, you know, Michael Hauser's posthumous solo, you know, instrumental record. I mean, is that something that just like is exists in his uh, creative, you know? space and it just pops up every couple years and then you know and then he has it there at the end as well or i mean that's just it would seem like it would be something that 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 was more common you know i mean even i don't know it just seems like it's just so random that it just would show up every year or two yeah i mean well it's it's a little ditty to 
kind of fill space, kind of like West Virginia is to Ain't Life Grand or Happy Child is to a bunch of songs. Um, I think for him, it's just sort of a, a way of moving things along. And frankly, I mean, no offense to anyone or anyone currently performing, I miss some of that stuff about Widespread Panic. I liked that part of what Hauser would bring to the um, the equation of just having some quiet moments or having things that felt a little more gentle or, I don't know, um, The, no, the notes you don't play, right? Or just as important as the ones you do. Yeah, ex- exactly, right? I mean... I don't know. And I think with Claiborne Terrace, it's so crazy is that, you know, I, w- I saw this from the very beginning. I looked tonight. It's it's in the very first Everyday Companion. And I don't think I ever heard it until Door Harp. I'm not sure about that. But I'm, I'm kind of confident that this is one of these songs where it was like, I thought it was fictitious. I thought it was a made up name. In fact, I probably lobbied at one point with Will to take it out because uh-huh. it was probably just an unknown jam. That big deal. So so this was in the very first Everyday Companion as yep. Claiborne Terrace? It, it huh. certainly was. Huh. Yeah. Um, and how many, how many, how many uh, copies of the first edition? Because I remember it was, it was, was it New Year's 96 yep. in, in the snow outside the Days Inn waiting for the in tickets? The, uh, I think that was the first time I saw it. Um, yeah. it. How many were circulated? I think we did about, I mean, I, I brought... Down to 96, I think I brought, how did I do that? Oh, wow, that's right. Okay, so I, th- I think we printed like 300 of these total, um, or maybe 350. And we, we did a pre-order to help pay for all the, the printing and stuff. And so, you know, really generous fans, without knowing what they were getting, sent checks for $25 to us. And uh, we were able to cobble enough money together to, to print. And um, I think we got, you know, a good printing of about 350 and, and about 100 of them went out pre-sale. Um, and then for, for the, that New Year's run, um, I happened to get invited to come down and go to the Morton Theater mm-hmm. for the December 28th show that occurred by Mary Armstrong. And... So I found some kids who were driving down from Chicago and threw, I think it was four boxes of maybe 20 or maybe, I can't remember exactly, maybe 80 of them total uh, in the back of his truck and rode down with these guys, five guys in a truck, which was a little tight. And I'm sure that they were not happy to have a six foot two dude in the car with them. But, um, but it was, it was great. And, and the, the response was ridiculous. I had no idea. I mean, we, we knew we were doing something cool and something that might be special. And I'd slung merch before and t-shirts and all sorts of crazy stuff for grateful dead. But this was a whole nother thing. People were getting this thing and freaking out. Mm-hmm. You know? um, it was, it was really cool to see how, how much people were getting out of it and, and how thankful they were to have something like this. All right. Well, um, let's go on. You, you talked, you touched on this next segment. Um, uh, from your uh, your Larry's Larry's code, right? And so this is this is one this segment uh, cont- contains one of the last uh, last existing pieces of Larry's code, right? It, it is Snor- snorkel search. Um, Dave Schools, uh, you know, uh, I think doesn't like the fact that we still have this in here because he, he, I think he gets asked about it quite a bit. <laughs> um, I believe it to be a fishwater precursor. If you listen huh. to it. 
Um, fish water is being developed at this time. Um, the very first fish water was just uh, the month before in March and wasn't really put into regular rotation until July of this year. So I think that's what this is, is sort of a, a, a jam based on fish water. Having said that, at the end of this jam, this snorkel, snorkel search jam, uh, right around the four-minute mark, Dave plays some sort of interesting, again, riff, jam, something like that. And I'm trying to figure out what it is. It feels like it could be derivative of Eliza's apartment, L.A., and they end up playing L.A. just after that. So in any case, um, if anyone listens to this and, and says, oh, no, no, this is he's like, you know, teasing some other song. Please reach out and let us know because I've been wondering about this one for a little while. And I'm sure Dave Schools would appreciate the the change in title if you could figure out something else to call it. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is uh, April 20th, 1990 in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, just outside uh, Nashville at, uh, at the Main Street. And uh, this is the start of the second set.
Panic in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, the home of Middle Tennessee State University at the Main Street Club, April 20th, 1990, right at the start of the of, of the second set. Uh, the only time uh, Snorkel Search shows, shows up on Widespread Panic set list into L.A. and into Proving Ground. Ted, got any, got any additional comments on this show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Liza's apartment or L.A., you know, a lot of people, like I was saying before, a lot of people say that, you know, Wadsworth Panic, jam band, southern rock band, but you listen to that song and it, does it sound to you like a jam band? That feels to me like progressive rock. It is a full on progressive rock masterpiece. Um, a Hauser uh, inspired minor key. Um, it has all the stuff that you would expect from a Panic song, too, because it has these unexpected time changes freaking bass solo and freaking bongos so in any case i especially like this version but um i do i think at the time this is when the band is turning a corner and um it's hard to define their sound if if you just listen to you know something like pairing proving ground in la it is um so it's rare that a band can can go into you know a song like proving ground from you know a song like eliza's apartment which we we all know is the theme song to the to the soap opera eliza's apartment that aired on nbc in the 1980s doesn't it, does it not sound like a like a soap <laughs> opera theme song i mean it's like it's, oh yeah it could be you know it, i think they might have didn't they use it on the weather channel a few yeah, times right, too la the weather channel for sure yeah 
Yeah. No, I just um, tease. I, no, LA or I, I like, I prefer Elias's apartment. And so I, so how does that, where did, what was the, the, uh, pro- progression of that song title? Oh, I'm pretty sure Eliza was an old girlfriend and that, um, I, the rumor that I'd heard that I think is true is that, that a, a future girlfriend and then wife ended up insisting on the name change. Okay. Um, so that's, a, that's, that's, a that's good how story. I understand I like it. it. But Your progressive rock comment. I mean, wasn't Steve Howe from Yes one of Hauser's really big influences in guitar playing? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean that's one of the things that we've talked about a lot during the course of you know the twenty eight or so episodes that we've done is is the diversity of influences in this band. And I think that the thing that you've really touched really hit on in your talking about the 88 show where they were starting to sort of you're starting to see where the bands coming together um while you were while you were talking i was looking up set lists from 88 just scrolling and how that's the year where they kind of go from the four set bar band playing a bunch of covers and by the end of the year they're shifting more to their standard two set format and this is you know less than two years later and they've stripped most of most of their most of the you know the jam band cover songs out of the set list and are starting to develop their own sound and i think but you know you've you've hit on something it's like there is there is that progressive rock part of of panic and especially in hauser's playing that gets intertwined with all of these other all of these other types of music yeah you'll you'll get me um in the next the next um episode i'll i'll talk a little bit um about some of that as well. And, and I think, you know, 1990, I was, I was saying this to Harvey as we were getting ready for this podcast via text. Um, I think 1990 is a completely underappreciated year for panic. Um, they're playing some crazy high level stuff here. I mean, listen to this proving ground tonight. Um, what a flipping cra- I mean, this is where the beast gets unleashed is during, <laughs> during this crazy proving ground. Um, it's fantastic. We take it for granted now they, you know, but imagine this is, this is, you know, they're, they're coming out of a little jam to start uh, a set and they find themselves in this ridiculously tight jam just before JB comes back with that final chorus. And then the tempo increases and it's just ridiculous. Um, I used to, back in the day, I used to have a phrase for that crazy dissonant jam that they would play during proving ground um, it's the, I can't believe no one got hurt jam, um, <laughs> because it, it just, everything kind of comes, all the wheels come off the bus. And in this particular version, listen to how tight Dave, Todd and Sunny sunny are to build that climax. They're turning the corner so quickly. It's just amazing. Um, in any case, I, this is one of my favorite passages of music from the band, but it, it's from one of the years that I wish we had more recordings. Uh, 1990 is also one that we we have some, but we really could use a lot more. So, Ted, and how you know you're talking about you know the band and sort of coming together and, and such, and you know how wh- how was this band able to, in your opinion, how was this band able to put all of these different types of music that they were influenced by into something that not only makes sense but sounds good, because you know, we're talking about things that in, in the hands of lesser skilled, less creative people would literally be a disaster. I mean, it would be schizophrenic, it'd be a schizophrenic bar band. Um, how did these guys, how were they able to put all this together and, and, and do something that ended up being quite brilliant? 
I, th- I think a lot of it just ended up being good circumstance. They were, they were committed. These guys lived together while they were doing things like working. I think JB was working at a landscaping company or like a, a tree farm or something like that. Um, Hauser was delivering Domino's pizza. I mean, they, and they were all living together. And so they, they, they were really committed. Like they, this was not like going to be, you know, I, you know, the, the, the Billy Bob Thornton widespread panic live at the Georgia theater movie. They, they ask Hauser at one point, you know, um, you know, why do you do this? And he, his answer is because it's all we can do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I really believe that. I think that they, they believe that, that they were really on the moon in Porch song, that there was, there was no telecommunications. There were no shoot, no shoes coming to them or whatever. This was it. Like if they didn't make it this way, they probably wouldn't be doing anything else. Uh, it's our music. Um, it comes from us. I don't have anything else to say but that, uh, we do it because it's all uh, all we we can do, pretty much. I definitely think that the the influence, like the, they each brought different sort of influences to the band, and, to, and that's how it sort of all. I mean, if you just look at the covers just from this show, right? So you're like JJ Kale, The Meters, Talking Heads, you know, Blind Faith. I mean, how do you, it's like, that's just all like, and then the, you know, the different styles of originals. I mean, that's just like so many different, it's just a gumbo of different styles all in one. It's, you know, I think it's awesome. Well, and I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, giving JB enough time to kind of catch up with the band as a musician. He was clearly a good lyricist. Um, and you had this really unique guitar player next to him with Hauser with, with a style that really no one else had ever heard before right it's it's and no one's done it since really i mean it's it's a really unique style and dave who is this just rock solid bass player who's bringing all sorts of crazy influences um in when you know you got todd the metronome and sunny who's able to just add the right kind of flavor to it i think that it's a lot of it you know they they allowed themselves a little bit of room a little bit of patience to get through it. It's kind of like those quiet moments I was talking about before, all these little instrumental ditties that Hauser would bring in. Not every band would have done that. I mean, they're playing bars, right? And so they could have stuck to playing covers and a little bit of banter in between songs and be done with it. But I think they were committed to an experience of music, playing to, again, I think this is in the Billy Bob Thornton movie too, where Colonel Bruce is in it and he's talking about playing to 30 people as if they're 30,000. And I think that's another part of it, right? Is like not leaving anything on the stage, you know, going for it. That was so. uh, that was actually from from the Hanson brothers from The Earth Will Swallow You, and, uh, and he talks okay. about playing with in, you know full intention, right? And that was mm-hmm. uh, you know I think that's a, that's a great that's a great line. Um, mm-hmm. That I think that that was the the uh, the vibe that the Colonel laid on everybody who he crossed paths with. Um, mm-hmm. and it, do, would you say that this show, is this qualify? Like also from the earth will swallow you when, when schools talks about the, uh, the four headed monster that, that used to, there five headed monster, I guess that used to scare all the hippies off. Is that, do you think this nineties <laughs> show is if qualifies? I think it could. I mean, you know, this is, we take it for granted now. We, we all know this music so well. It's hard to imagine what it would have been like if I was, 
you know, hoping to hear, I know you writer and they flip an <laughs> unleashed proving ground on my brain. And you know, the drum kits feel like they're going to tip over at any second, you know, wow. I, I think so. I think this is, although, although I will say what we've got coming up might actually qualify even better. Well, so yeah, that's a, well, well played, sir. Um, so that's a great leader to, and this is a very unique, um, moment in the band's history right because you're you're there's just a handful of shows between keyboard players and um so mm-hmm. they had the whole run with t lavitz through 91 and um and then you know he decides that he wants to do you know his own thing and so the band is uh back to the original five piece and this is and they play a run of shows before uh jojo joins the band and they couldn't shake him and uh so this is from february of 92 and um and any sort of intro you want to you want to give us on this one yeah sure i mean as you said there's only a few shows they they audition um jojo like two weeks after this Mm -hmm. um and this is we're picking it up the jam out of drums um sunny really goes nuts on the talking drum and then takes that phrase very literally um and then you'll also hear dave kind of pick up on those talking drum vibrations i believe this to be a precursor to entering a black hole backwards which mm-hmm. we mentioned yeah there are definitely the some, themes, some themes in there um, yeah the other thing that sticks out to me just looking at the uh, at the set list that, that had been uh 47 shows since a drums <laughs> from the show that they hadn't played it since october of, of 91 when they played here and, and all that's kind so. of interesting isn't it i yeah. hadn't i'd never seen that before huh it you know i wonder you know again t lavitz uh, that the effect that he had on the band mm-hmm. he was definitely maybe it was a little more straightforward kind of song 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 thing going on there yeah where, they, they do drums f- what four times in 91 that's it so or three no, just yeah, be, four times yeah could be incomplete records in our part too but it, i have a feeling oh, you know no, it can be that come on <laughs> well and then you know you have jojo kind of turn the corner here and i think this is a good passage to kind of hear what the band is trying to do they're getting more rhythmic um, than maybe they had been in the last year or so and then you get jojo coming in who's very interested in a new orleans kind of vibe which you know you can imagine the meters and uh, you know how can you have um you know a new orleans style without having a really strong rhythm section behind mm-hmm. you so um yeah the, Enjoy enjoy this uh, five-headed monster selection from February 21st, 1992.
So that was the, the jam out of drums into Chili Water from February 21st, 1992. Uh, widespread Panic, the five-headed monster, bringing their jam straight into your ears. Um, I love all that crazy shit that Sonny's doing there, uh, all the weird scatting. Although, I'll tell you, the story, uh, the very first time that I heard this song, I was working on Everyday Companion uh, number one, I believe, and it was the middle of the freaking night. I, I think I'd smoked a whole bunch of pot and it was like three o'clock in the morning and there's Sonny jamming out like scatting. And all of a sudden he says this thing. It feels like he's saying, where's Lisa? <laughs> well, <laughs> my wife's name's Lisa. And it freaked the man. It was like three o'clock in the morning. Like what's going on? Um, it, it really freaked me out. It was kind of the craziest thing, but how about that chilly water guys? I mean, primal Michael Hauser, super loud, um, amazingly like raw and right cutting to the, the core of why chili water is such a powerful song. Um, it's, it's almost so powerful that JB forgets how to get out of the song, (laughs) (laughs) misses his cue. Um, but again, that that combo of Sonny Todd and Dave, like laying down a serious groove. This is this is one of these crazy passages where you just re- you really appreciate what those three players bring, day in and day out, uh, for early Panic. So, I definitely think that that Chile is a good um, barometer for you know the different eras of the band. You know, I mean, just sort of how it it morphed over the years um, from. I mean, it wasn't really a quiet song in the beginning, but it doesn't wasn't quite the rager that it you know that it turned into later. And uh, this is mm-hmm. you're catching it here as it's starting to turn the corner on that side. 
And you're also catching the band just before they get a keyboard player back. And I think that that provides a melodic and lyrical structure to their music that helps it not be quite as psychedelically raw or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. You contrast this with what we'll play in the next episode from July of this same year. And it feels like a, a different band. Um, you know, this, this is definitely a party. What they're doing here is like, it, it's bordering on, it could come apart at the seams at any second. What they're doing as they turn the corner into, into summer of 1982, they're clearly on an upward trajectory towards competing with or, or being able to be head and shoulders with a lot of their, their peers in, in the live music touring uh, uh, realm. Well, um, I think that's what they call a tease for next week. So um, that's a that's a good setup. Um, you you willing to join us? Join us one more time. We'll do this again next week. I would love to. You guys are a lot of fun. I, I would love to uh, continue this conversation for sure. All right, we'll do it. Um, Ted, we appreciate your time and uh, appreciate everybody uh, listening. Definitely uh, check out the website, bluestape.com. Like us on Facebook and uh, follow us on Twitter. And uh, definitely, as always, appreciate uh, the folks at Everyday Companion uh, because we we would just be bumbling around here if we didn't have the stats uh, to back it up and um, and Curtis and PanicStream as well. So um, appreciate you guys listening, and uh, we will talk to you next week. 